0: Open them up to Daniel chapter 2. No, yeah, chapter 2. One of these days we'll get kicking into Daniel. But uh, kind of what my plan is over the, the rest of the summer is I'm wanting to do my best to see if I can tackle a chapter of Daniel all the way through chapter 6. So uh, just about four more weeks through that. And just looking at this question, how do we live in exile? That Daniel's is uh, Daniel is quite literally an Israelite born into well, born into Israel, but then taken by Babylon into exile and then demanded that he lives according to Babylonian rules. And yet we still find story after story where he lives in accordance to God's will in the, the scriptures. And so what's going on? How does he do that? And then asking the question, what does that look like today in a culture that seems to be kind of further and further away from Christian values? How do we live in accordance to the Bible? But we've been talking about this in this term or this picture of culture, you know, Babylonian culture versus Israel culture, American culture versus church culture, the media culture, whatever you want to draw it up as. What I've learned is every time you put two or more people together, there's some form of cultural collision. It's just the normal reality of people. So the coworker that warms up sauerkraut for lunch, who, why, man? Like cultural collision, collision, Uh, that person that just stands way too close to you when they're talking to you and it really feels like they don't believe in brushing their teeth, cultural collision. But I think where this is most often experienced and most vividly experienced is the newlywed phase of life. That phase where you marry someone else that is just absolutely perfect in your eyes. You cannot wait to start life with them. And then you wake up and realize they are nothing like the family you grew up in. Have you guys experienced this? I've told this story before, but it's one of my favorites. So I got to tell it again. Haley and I had just gotten married. We had went on our honeymoon. We had come back on our honeymoon. Now, the way our our relationship kind of lined up is I moved from Tennessee uh, into the apartment that we were going to live in, uh, live in, and she lived with her parents um, until after the wedding. And so being, I guess, just the bachelor guy I was, I went and bought the things I thought our apartment needed to survive in. But upon uh, you know, living there for a day, Haley looked at everything and said, we don't have anywhere near enough groceries. We need to do a grocery trip. I think that would still be the exact same way today. Like if I lived in the house by myself for a week, she would come home and be like, what? how did you survive on this? Um, So anyway, so we plan our grocery trip. She says, what are your favorite meals? Let's go ahead and get a list of what we want to make. Uh, So one of my favorite meals is is always and has been vegetable soup with grilled cheese sandwiches. You just can't go wrong with vegetable soup and grilled cheese sandwich. So we're walking to the grocery store. We're getting the ingredients. We get over to the, the dairy section of the cheese, and she picks up a block of cheese, which really confused me. Cause that's, that's, that's cutting cheese or, you know, in, in the South, sometimes we call it fancy cheese. You guys, anybody call that fancy cheese? Yeah, we call it fancy cheese. That might be redneck. Um, we would call it fancy cheese. And so I looked at her and I looked with this really confused face and I was like, why are you getting that cheese? You can't get that jet, that cheese. And she's like, what do you mean? Like, I don't understand. Why are we buying cutting cheese? She said, we're buying this for grilled cheese sandwiches. And I said, just without thinking, You can't make grilled cheese sandwiches with that. That's cutting cheese. That's for like special occasions and guests only. That's not for grilled cheese. Like grilled cheese is like craft singles. But even that was probably a little bit beyond us. We probably did like the great value brand of (laughs) singles sliced cheese. And uh, she looked at me and I I realized at that point that whatever I had said, by whatever means, came across really weird to her, like just ignorant. And so she said, you're joking, aren't you? And I realized that I should be joking. For whatever reason, I didn't understand why. So I was like, I, yeah, I'm joking. And she's like, no, you're not. You think grilled cheeses are supposed to be made with craft single cheese, don't you? Right? C- cultural collision. The question then is when two cultures collide, who wins out? Because there's two possibilities, I think. To one extent, it's, it doesn't really matter, so we can make some cultural compromise. This is what we talked about last week at length. That compromise isn't always a bad thing, especially when there's not a lot on the line. So that close talker in the checkout line at Walmart that doesn't believe in brushing his teeth, you know, it's 45 seconds. Endure it, move on, try not to get in the line behind that guy again. Or that coworker that warmed up sauerkraut in the bake break room, maybe it's just a lunch at your desk type of day, you know. But what about when a choice has to be made? Or what about when the cultural collision actually demands you to pick grilled cheese with craft singles, grilled cheese with fancy cheese? Which one do you pick? And I think the idea that we have to go with is we have to try our best to identify the compelling choice. So last week, we talked all about how if we're going to live in exile, we can't allow the culture that have put us here to influence us. What we call this is compromise. We we can't compromise with culture when it comes to standing on what God has called us to stand on. So this week, what we're going to do is say, how do we then influence culture? So if culture influencing us is compromise, what is us influencing culture? And we're going to use that word calling. So last week we said resolving or exiles resolve not to compromise this week. What we're going to say is this Here's the, the kind of key point. Resolved exiles must live into calling. And I think this is what Daniel 2 is all about. It's all about Daniel as he lives into his calling that God speaks over him in chapter one, verse 17. So if you read verse 17, it says God gave these four young men. That's Daniel and his friends knowledge and understanding in every kind of literature and wisdom. And Daniel also understood visions and dreams of every kind. It's the calling that God specifically places on Daniel's life. And then chapter two is how he lives into that calling to influence the Babylonian culture around him. Now, rather than reading the whole chapter, because that's a lot of text, let me just summarize a bit, and we'll kind of jump in and out of, of the text as we go. Daniel two opens with King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian empire, unable to sleep from this series of anxiety dreams that he's living, uh, that he's having, leaving him worried and concerned. So in an attempt to make sense of this dream, he calls for every single person if he can think within the kingdom that might have some ability to explain the dream to him. Now, Nebuchadnezzar isn't dumb, though. He knows that if he just tells them the dream, then they can say whatever they want and say, this is what the dream means. And they can just make it up on the spot. So in Daniel's mind or in Nebuchadnezzar's mind, he can't actually trust them to do that. So instead, he puts this little problem to the test. He looks at all of his wise men and and magicians and these people. And he says, I need you to both tell me the dream I've been having and then interpret that dream. They, of course, say, we we can't tell you the dream you're having, Nebuchadnezzar, until you tell us what the dream is. And they go back and forth until Nebuchadnezzar essentially makes the decision, um, well, I'll tell you what, until someone can come tell me the dream, or if no one can, I'm just going to kill every wise man in position in the land. That'll solve this problem. I'll just flex my power and kill everybody. Now, the problem with this is, in the last chapter, Daniel and his friends graduate with a Ph.D. in Babylonian studies, classifying them as wise men in the eyes of Babylon. So as the story goes, the executioner shows up to Daniel's door saying, hey, the king's decreed that you and all your friends are going to be put to death because no one can interpret or tell him and then interpret this dream. So Daniel decides to at least kind of to throw his hat into the ring and he tells the king to give him a little bit to think on it. And we'll pick up in verse 17. Then Daniel went at once to his house, and he told his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, remember that is the Hebrew names for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, about the matter, urging them to ask the God of the heavens for mercy concerning this mystery. So Daniel and his friends would not be destroyed with the rest of of Babylon's wise men. The mystery was then revealed to Daniel in a vision at night, and Daniel praised God the heavens, and he declared, may the name of God be praised forever and ever for his wisdom and his power belong to him. He changes the times and the seasons, he removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells within him. I offer thanks and praise to you, God of my fathers, because you have given me wisdom and power. And now you have let me know that what we may ask of you and you have let us know the king's mystery. Therefore, Daniel went to Ariok. That's the the executioner, the guy that's supposed to kill Daniel, whom the king had decided to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He came and said to him, don't destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me before the king and I will give him the interpretation. Then Ariok went quickly and brought Daniel before the king and said to him, I have found the man among the Judean exiles who can let the king know this interpretation. The king said in reply to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar. That's his Babylonian name given to him. Are you able to tell me the dream I had and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king. No wise man, medium, magician or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he's asked about. But there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. Your dream and the vision that came to your mind as you lay in bed were these. And he went and goes and he gives him the dream. The dream goes something along the lines of there's this statue with the head made of gold. And as the body goes down, it goes into different, less and less valuable metals and materials. And so then in the dream, this rock falls down onto the statue, and this little rock seemingly crumbles the entire statue to dust, and the dust blows away with the wind. And then that little rock turns somehow into this giant mountain filling the entire earth. And so Daniel's going to go on to give this messianic interpretation, explaining how after four powerhouse kingdoms, of which Nebuchadnezzar is the first, God is then going to establish an eternal kingdom that seems to be small, but then overtakes the world. This is the interpretation he gives, then it closes out in verse 46 like this. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell face down and worshiped Daniel and gave orders to present an offering of incense to him. The king said to Daniel, your God is indeed the God of gods, the Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries. since you are able to reveal this mystery. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many generous gifts. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. And at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to manage the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained in the king's courts. It's this incredible story where Daniel holds this radical influence over the very culture that has exiled him by living into his calling. So from there, we can kind of cascade a list of questions to then build back and talk about. We can say, if we influence culture by living into our calling, well then, how do we live into our calling? And on that note, what does it even mean to be called? What do we know, or how do we know what we are called to? And I want to talk to that in three movements through this text. The first one is what I'm going to call calling as narrative. The second will be calling as mundane. And the third one will be calling as marvelous. I think you'll find in this text it lines up this way. So let's start calling as narrative. Here's what I mean. Knowing your calling means knowing your narrative. Knowing where you came from, where you are, where you're going. The better you understand that, the more likely you are to live into some sort of calling. But, but here's the thing. On the surface, that feels very individualistic. Oh, my calling, my narrative, My story but it's not anywhere near as individualistic as you think. In fact, almost every culture involves some sort of shared narrative that's seeking to answer the question, who are we, where did we come from, and where are we going? So in our family, we reserve fancy cheese for guests only. Well, in our family, we use cutting cheese for grilled cheese and make the best grilled cheeses you've ever had. Different narratives explain different things. And part of that is the influence then of convincing others to join into your shared narrative. This is exactly what Babylon is trying to do with Daniel and his friends. If you remember back in chapter one, one of the key things that Daniel is forced to participate in is this three year cultural enrichment program where he's supposed to learn about all the ways and narratives and literature of the Babylonian culture. Now, that sounds kind of far off and not all that tangible to us, but it's far more tangible when you actually go back and look, because we can go and read Babylonian literature. Now, I doubt many of you spend a lot of your days reading Babylonian literature for fun. It's really weird and complicated. But one of the main key texts is what we call the Anuma Elish. It's the Babylonian or the ancient Mesopotamian creation text of how the world came into existence In summary, it goes something along the lines of this. It opens up with chaos waters, of which there's salt water in the goddess Tiamat, and there's fresh water in the god Apsu, and they're in this kind of concoction of water intermixing together. And it's out of them mixing together that the younger gods are born. And there's this pantheon of younger gods that come from this. But the problem uh, that comes out of this is Apsu, he gets a little annoyed, because the younger gods are just way too loud. They keep him awake at night. They really, as a guy that has a newborn baby, I don't know why he would feel this way. But he gets a little upset with all of these younger gods keeping him awake at night. And so he goes to Tiamat and he says, I have a problem with these younger gods. It's time for us to get rid of them. Well, Tiamat doesn't want to get rid of the younger gods. So she, in turn, goes to the firstborn son that she has and explains, hey, Apsu's trying to get rid of you guys, to which he decides to go and kill Apsu. This is the Babylonian narrative of the creation of the world. Isn't it so fun? So he goes and he kills Apsu. Tiamat was mad because she didn't actually want Apsu to die. So she sets war against the younger gods. And there's this, all these creation things that she does, and it's crazy stuff. But there's this war that goes on. And out of the younger gods, a guy rises up by the name of Marduk. And Marduk becomes the champion of the younger gods. And he goes to war against Tiamat. And as the story goes, he cuts Tiamat in half with an arrow. And it's from her body, divided in two, her corpse, that he creates the heavens and the earth. Is the creation narrative of the Babylonians. Tiamat's top body becomes the heavens, the bottom part becomes the earth, and then he sets war to all the gods that sided with her, and he kills all of them. And it's from the blood of all of these gods that he then forms humanity. And then the text goes on to say this on the peoples that he that Marduk created, he imposed the service of the gods, and the gods took rest. Do you understand the creation narrative? At least to some extent of the Babylonians. Humanity is not a creation of love. It's a creation of necessity so that the gods don't have to work anymore. And we're not born out of some sort of loving relationship. We're actually birthed out of blood and war. And this is the idea that shapes the narrative of Babylon. In fact... Babylonian thought in their mind, the only humans not made to be mere slaves were the human kings and the officials within his court. Every other human was created to be a slave. And that's not just some story that they liked to tell because they thought it was fun, like an Avengers movie. This is what they legitimately believe. This is what they base their life and their culture, that the gods made an elite class of people and then a lower class of people to be the elites, servants and slaves. Those slaves were placed in positions by the gods to make the lives of the elites better. Therefore, if you had the privilege of being an elite, then just treating everyone below you as mere utensils to be either used of, disposed, used of or disposed of is normal. That's just how you treat people. In fact... In their mind, it's war and bloodshed that actually leads to the result of creating new life. So there's absolutely nothing morally wrong with killing the people of the servant class. This is what is normal in King Nebuchadnezzar's mind. This is his narrative. It's the world that he leads. I mean, all through the first three chapters of Daniel, you'll find examples of this. In chapter one, when Daniel asks the chief eunuch if he cannot eat the king's food and drink the king's wine, you know what the eunuch's fear is? Well, if you don't eat this and you look unhealthy, the king will surely kill me. In Daniel chapter 2, right at the beginning in verse 5, when he's about to kill every wise man in the country unless someone can interpret his dream and actually tell him the dream first, uh, he says this. If you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you will be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made into a garbage dump. And if that just is a one-time occurrence, then not great, but it's actually not. Chapter 3, after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are first thrown into the fire, we'll read this next week, and they're safe from the fire, Nebuchadnezzar responds this way in chapter 3, verse 29, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house be made into a garbage dump. Do you see where Nebuchadnezzar kind of makes his functions? He is all about using his power to kill anyone that questions his power. And it sounds so foreign to us, but understand, according to the narrative that Nebuchadnezzar believes, he's just living into his calling. The narrative that shapes his life, that shapes how he acts and reacts, gives him permission to act this way. So what are the implications of Nebuchadnezzar's narrative? Well, chapter two opens up with the most powerful man in the world, crippled by anxiety Because his narrative and calling is threatened. And do you know what threatens it? A dream. The most powerful man in the world is brought to his knees out of the fear of a dream he's having. Why? Well, because all of his life, Nebuchadnezzar has lived into this narrative that he himself is borderline divine and unchallengeable. I mean, in his mind, there is literally no other human on the planet more privileged or closer to the gods than he is. There was no nation, no people, no person more powerful than him. And that is the driving force of his existence. Go gain more power. Every action... Every decision was rooted in an attempt to achieve more, conquer more. And once he had pretty well conquered the known world, well, he dials it back and it just becomes all about holding on to that power. But now he keeps having these dreams that seem to pose a threat to his power. and He doesn't know how to respond. So he leans even heavier into his power play and he defaults back into this narrative of the norm of violence and bloodshed as a mean of getting whatever he wants. That's his creational narrative. That's the means by which he should be able to alleviate his own anxieties and maintain his power. So take that narrative and contrast that to the narrative Daniel believes in. Because even though Daniel's been trained in the Babylonian literature, it's clear that he still holds to and believes the Hebrew creation narrative instead of the Babylonian one. In chapter 2, when he's praying in verse 21, he says, God changes the times and seasons. He removes kings. He establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And then he's even going to go down in verse 23 and reference God as the God of my fathers. He's saying, God, I understand that regardless of the situation I'm in, I actually know it's you that's in control. And it's the ancestry I live into that I believe to be true over whatever it is Babylon is teaching me. So what's the narrative that Daniel believes? Well, he believes that the one true God of all creation creates not out of war and violence, but out of relational love. In fact, Yahweh doesn't have to go to war against any sort of chaos monster like Tiamat and cut her in half with an arrow because God just merely speaks and creation obeys the presence of the spirit itself hovering over the deep calms the chaos waters. And it's from that relational love that God then creates humanity in his image. And there's not any classification of this type of person is more human and more in God's image than this type of person. But it's actually humanity entirely created in the image of God, no matter who they are, what ethnicity, where they come from, or what their classification is within their economic bracket. Every human is created in the image of God. And humanity was created in the image of God, not to be some form of slaves to God, but to actually work, rule, and reign alongside God. This is the narrative that Daniel believes. This is what he holds to. So from there, we can actually start looking at how Daniel responds. How he reacts to this training. So when Nebuchadnezzar's calling shapes him into anxiety and fear, how does Daniel's calling shape him? Well, if you look at verse 14 in chapter 2, as he's responding, learning that the executioner is here to kill him, he says, Daniel responded with tact and discretion. Nebuchadnezzar responds with fear and anxiety. Daniel responds with tact and discretion. Do you notice the difference? That has to be shaped by the cultural narrative of what Daniel believes. While Nebuchadnezzar reacts with threats of violence, Daniel reacts with what really seems to be quite mundane reactions. There's no outcry. There's no calls for protest. and Let me get my friends and they're going to get their picket signed together. We're going to show you what's real, Nebuchadnezzar. There's no, that's not fair. There's no, how dare you treat me that way. There's no scared cry plea from his knees saying, please don't kill me, king. Daniel respectfully asks the king for some time. He goes home and he asks his friends to pray with him. Do you understand how mundane that is? See, the calling of Daniel's narrative leads him to a calling of the mundane. Now, I'm sure these prayer meetings with his friends might have some anxiety within them. I would understand that totally. But his reaction is not one of fear, it's one of tact, discretion, and there's going back and doing the things that he's always done. Right here for Daniel, his calling is not first to radical influence, it is to two ordinary practices. Things that he was probably going to do that night anyways, because it was just the things he did every day. Meet with his friends and pray. Verse 17 and 18. Then Daniel went to his house. He told his friends Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah about the matter and he urged them to ask the gods of the heavens for mer- the god of the heavens for mercy. Daniel went home. He sat down with his friends and he prayed. See, I think sometimes it's really just the calling of the mundane that builds into the influence of the marvelous. But but make no mistake, God has no qualms using your mundane actions to bring marvelous realities, because that's what God does. It's in that night of prayer that God gives Daniel the vision and Daniel goes and he presents it to the king. Now, here's the thing about this calling is marvelous. The marvel of this story, I think, is a little bit more unexpected than what you might think on the surface. You know, it's one thing to look at verse 46 and see that Daniel, he, received, he gives the dream to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar falls down in worship, and we're like, whoa, look at that influence, that's amazing, and it is. But you've got to remember that Nebuchadnezzar is going to create plenty of more chaos for Daniel and his friends just in the very next chapter. The marvel in this story, I think, might actually lie very much in the heart of Daniel himself, and then stretch 3,000 years later to us. Because I believe the marvel of this story comes from the messianic promise given to King Nebuchadnezzar and then told through Daniel. Because Nebuchadnezzar's response has very little to do with our lives today. Very little effect on how you and I live our everyday lives. But the implications, the interpretations of this dream, it's a reality we live in right here and right now. Because the gold head of the statue represents Babylon, of course. Daniel says that. And we're not exactly told what the other three kingdoms represent, but I think it's a pretty clear picture once we start piecing things together. Because right after Babylon, Babylon would be overtaken by a kingdom called Persia. And then after Persia, Alexander the Great would come and he would be the next uh, key global leader, conquering every inch of the known world, establishing the Greek Empire. And it's from the Greek Empire that the Roman Empire actually comes in and takes leadership Being one, Babylonians, Persians, Greek, Romans, four kingdoms. And by the time we get to the New Testament, the Jewish people are pins and needles saying, when is that small rock falling? Because Daniel said it was going to fall. And then Jesus shows up to the scene, an insignificant peasant from the tiny town of Nazareth, claiming to be the eternal king of heaven. And that small rock begins to influence the Roman Empire. In fact, in a few hundred years, it overtakes the Roman Empire. And now, 2,000 years later, that small rock has grown, grown into a global influence. See, I think the marvel of Daniel, two is God's ability to both intercede in wonder within Daniel's life and also remind Daniel that the story being written is far bigger than the exile that he's facing. Because now Daniel knows given how much he's lost family home community ancestors the way place he grew up in of wondering how is god's promise is going to come true the promise of a kingdom that lasts forever the promise of a messiah from the line of jesse how is any of that possible now that we're in exile and yet god comes in and he gives him this little reminder that through trusting the calling of the biblical narrative and through following that calling out to the mundane practices of daily faith, Daniel finds the marvel of his own calling, playing a role in the eternal kingdom God's building. Here's a quote by a Reformed theologian from Scotland. His name's Sinclair Ferguson. He says this, and I love it His kingdom, God's kingdom, Is not established in any otherworldly mystical way, but through the lives of men and women, flesh and blood, here and now, it comes into being in the world in the context and rise in the context of the rise and fall of empires, in the midst of good days and bad days, good rulers and evil kings. See all those things on a day to day basis, they feel mundane. But that's the means by which God builds his kingdom while the faithful remain true to him, even in the midst of all of that. And it's from that mundane to marvelous calling that the influence flows out of him in a way the Babylonian empire can not ignore. So now let's bring it here. How do we influence the culture around us? It might seem like a nearly impossibly daunting task, and maybe to some extent it is. But I think if we're going to say, how do we even start the process? We have to start here. Resolve to live into your calling. We have to resolve to live into the calling God has placed on us. Meaning three things. Meaning we know our narrative. Meaning we live into the mundane. And we trust God's marvelous work. Know your narrative. The reality is, is in thousands of years, humanity has not changed. We are still seeking to capitulate some form of shared narrative to answer the questions, where did we come from, where are we, and where are we going? We've just now moved from this mythological stance of pagan stories to what we might now call naturalistic evolution. I was going to use the word science, but I think one of the problems we have is Christianity has become anti-science. and I don't ever want to be taken as like anti-science, There's great things that science say. But the attempt has been to use the idea of naturalistic evolution to be the end-all, be-all narrative of how we got to where we are. Meaning the story of humanity is just a, a story of chance void of any particular or eternal purpose so where do we come from well you really come from millions upon millions of years of evolutionary progress that really has no specific design or or purpose and existence really just is you just exist welcome to the randomness and so where are we well we're we're here Just a temporary mass of sentient cells trying to survive. So survive however survival best fits you. Whatever feels right, whatever makes you happy, whatever makes you think you're fulfilled throughout the day, that's how you should live. It's really interesting in the book, The God Delusion, which is the, kind of the classic atheistic book by Richard Dawkins to try to explain why he believes this is the more compelling narrative by which humans should live. He talks about a conversation he has with James Watson, one of the guys, the key founders of uh, DNA, Watson and Crick, if you remember that. And he quotes Watson saying this because he, he asks Watson, well, so how do you respond when people say, what are we for or why? Why are we here? And Watson responds, well, I don't think we are for anything. We're just products of evolution. You can say, gee, your life must be pretty bleak if you don't think there's a purpose. But I'm anticipating having a good lunch. And that's how Watson believes. But the key purpose of life is just to have a really good lunch. The sad thing is, is what if your lunch isn't that good that day? Like, why why live then at that point? And where are we going? Well, I guess we're just going to have a good lunch because that's about all there is to it. That's the shared narrative that seems to be growing exponentially in the West over the past 300 years. And I mention that because in a lot of ways what exile means is holding on to a narrative that is actually not the shared narrative of the general population around you. And I think sometimes our response to that is this fear of well we should never learn anything about competing narratives because that'll lead us astray. So we can't learn anything about evolution and we can't learn that's really bad, don't talk. And I would just say to that with all kindness, if you'll remember, Daniel is forced to learn all about the narrative of Babylon. But it does not influence him one bit. The key lies not in ignorance and avoidance. The key lies in knowledge. And then to ask the question, which one is more compelling? Because when Haley got home and she took that cutting cheese and she made grilled cheese. And by the way, this is going to sound crazy to you, but uh, she also puts mayonnaise on her grilled cheeses. Oh, my. So she made a grilled cheese and I was in the other room playing video games with some friends and she said here You just have to try this. Let me know what you think And I tried it. I stood up and walked in the kitchen. I was like, this is the best grilled cheese I have ever had And let me tell you how many times I will willingly eat or make a grilled cheese with Kraft Singles I'm not doing that ever again. She has won me over She has influenced me because that is by far the more compelling option when I've tasted both of them The question is Existence from randomness providing nothing but a temporary life of no eternal significance or the all-knowing God creating you and designing you intentionally from the love and the desire to give you eternal purpose, which is more compelling. Now, there will always be people that might fall on opposite sides of that, but I would just say if we struggle to make Jesus compelling, then we're missing something. That we're not telling the story of the gospel correctly, because the story of a God who created you in his image to think, to act, to love, to know, to experience, not just from the day you were born, but stretching into the eternity of your existence. And then knowing that you squabbled it and messed it up in sin. That I messed it up in brokenness. But then choosing rather than to leave us in that sin, but to instead pursue us by coming to life as one of those humans, living life as it was supposed to be lived, and then willingly giving up that perfect life on behalf of us. I'm telling you, if we can't compete, compel compel people with that story, we're not telling it well enough. Because if that story is true, then I'm sorry, and I'm biased, sure, maybe... But I believe that is far more compelling than just existence from mere chance. That the life I live actually has meaning and it actually matters, even when it might feel mundane sometimes. So we believe that narrative and then we just practice the mundane. If the story of Scripture is more compelling, then we have to live into that story. And that's not some list of rules given to just limit you. It's an invitation to participate in the eternal plan of God. I think one of our problems today is that we've really come to despise the mundane. Our culture, we just we just hate the mundane things. I mean, maybe not here in Portales as much, but go to Albuquerque and tell someone in Albuquerque, yeah, I live in Portales, New Mexico, and watch them look at you with like the worst face of disgust they've ever seen. How do you live in a place like Portales? In the words of one of my favorite authors, Mark Sayers, he's a Christian commentator, uh, he, he said this The modern idea of hell is pushing a screaming child in a shopping cart through a rural Walmart. <laughs> no one wants that. And I think to some extent, this has seeped into the modern church and the modern concept of Christianity, where we no longer give any room for the mundane within church. We want the marvelous, and we want it right now. And if it's not happening in this church, well, we'll just go to another church where it does seem to be happening. And don't hear that as some affirmation of the opposite, because a church that never encounters the marvelous work of God is also problematic. But it's a church that learns the ebb and flow of practicing the mundane and trusting the marvelous to come. Do not let sensationalized media or the world's disdain for the mundane or some self-proclaimed Christian influencer on Instagram fool you into thinking that your calling and your influence must be extraordinary to be biblical. It's wonderful to hear of the powerful stories of people doing extraordinary things like planning an orphanage in Bangladesh. But it's just as wonderful to participate in the equally powerful call To raise a family, live in community, go to school, practice prayer, come to church in Portales, New Mexico. Biblically, it's actually those mundane acts that build into the marvelous over and over. You do not get Pentecost without a room full of disciples sitting in silence waiting on what's going to happen next. You don't have the feeding of the 5,000 without the gift of a small child saying it's not much, but here you can have this, God. God. And you don't have the king of the known world, the most powerful man in the world at that point, fall prostrate before a Hebrew exile without a night of prayer from that exile and his friends. There is an ebb and flow to the practice of the mundane and the experience of the marvelous. But don't let it stop you from knowing that there is a marvelous work of God, that God works wonderful accounts. It's really interesting, though, in the story of Daniel in the narrative portion, it's only about six chapters long. But those six, ch- six chapters cover about 70 years of time. So if you do the math on that, just the ratio of extraordinary event to the mundane everyday life, you're looking at like one event every 11 years. And it's the same in the book of Acts and other things like that. But right here, it's in the faithfulness of the mundane that God breaks through to the marvelous, because here's the reality. We can trust God's Marvel. Now he doesn't need us to influence culture. He doesn't need us to be part of that. But he invites us. See, the invitation of God of us to participate with him is by far the most marvelous thing that could ever happen to you or I. To intimately know the true, more compelling universe uh, narrative of the universe to live daily into that narrative by simply doing what God calls us to do, living in community with others, praying, and to know that that lifestyle will ex- eventually experience the marvelous work of God. That's not our timeline. We're not boxing God in to say, all right, God, I've done the mundane for 10 years now. It's about time for you to do something marvelous. Chip, get to it. But it's just say, God, I trust you. And I trust your ability to influence this culture, even if it seems so beyond what we could ever do. So I'm going to keep doing what you've asked me to do that means the mundane everyday things that means finding people that love jesus the way you love jesus setting down with them and saying can we just pray together that means going to lunch with people that you know love jesus and having lunch with them that means joining and coming to church not in some means of making god love you more but just participating and then trusting as we do the mundane god reacts and god blesses so what if we really believe this narrative what if we really lived into these practices? Or maybe the most practical question would be, when's the last time we've seen the marvelous work of God at First Baptist? Maybe it's time to start praying for that, even in the mundane actions of everyday life. See, as we wrap up, this is what we're celebrating today in Lord's Supper. That it's through the death and burial of Jesus, the blood shed and the body beaten, that we actually get the chance to live an everyday life with the creator of the universe. And that might experientially feel somewhat mundane to you. But I'm telling you, it is the least mundane thing you could ever do. So maybe right here, right now, it's just time to have some mundane moments with God. We're going to respond and, and give you a chance to pray or whatever. And you just need to say take a few moments and say, God, I've been trying to live all the way out here. I just need to dial back and experience you. Can we just pray right here and now? Can we talk? And you talk right from your pew. Maybe it's in participating in the Lord's Supper that you can think about what God has done to bring you into the story and then to think, what do you do to go live into it after this?